What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. morning and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty tough topics. Today, it's tough in a different way. We're talking about grief and grieving and we're talking with Frances Weller. Frances, are you there? I am here, Heather. Great. Frances Weller is a psychotherapist, a writer, and a soul activist, and we're going to talk more about what that means to be a soul activist. He's a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thoughts from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, poetic traditions, and you are also the author of Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And you talk about grief and your work in grief as healing work. Now, this is quite a, a different approach from what we usually think of as grief therapy. And it seems to me that this is a little bit different from how we usually think of grief. And what appealed to me about your approach, Francis, is that I think that we grieve in many ways and for many things. And I don't think our society acknowledges that. So that's my little theory. Tell me how you came to come to doing work in grief and grieving, and then we're going to talk about how you came to such a diverse approach to it. Okay. Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. Um, well, I've been a therapist for 35 years, and sitting with people day after day, and in many groups that I've run, the primary issue even when it's self-diagnosed like depression, is actually oppression. It's unresolved losses in our life. And you're exactly right that we very rarely have a, an encompassing understanding of loss. It's usually narrowed down to uh, losing something or someone that we love, either through a death or a divorce or moving away or something like that. And that's only the, that's primarily the only thing that we acknowledge as grief in our culture, but there are so many other threads of grief. The loss of our own uh, integrity when we have portions of our being unacknowledged or unwelcomed in our families or in our education systems, our religious systems. Um, we lose, uh, we're at night, right now we're watching this decay and erosion of culture and also the decay and erosion of, of our planet. So the sources of sorrow are around us constantly, but we have very few means by which they're acknowledged or addressed, so we begin to accumulate grief. We are, we, we, we are like walking around with U-Hauls full of sorrow, and no means <laughs> you know, to really... Francis, I have to tell you, I, I gave a, a presentation on to, to try and help people understand the complexities of uh, a woman's responses to domestic violence. And I was asked to do this in a 10-minute format. And I thought, <laughs> okay, terrific. Uh -huh. And so what I came up with, finally, was I collect rocks. Whenever I go anywhere, I pick up a rock and put it in my pocket. And so in my house, I have like three giant baskets full of rocks. Yes. And as I was trying to plan out how I was going to explain you know, the, this this process, this experience of domestic violence and incremental oppression, I looked at my basket of rocks and I thought, the rocks. So I threw all of my rocks in the dishwasher and my son came over to visit and he said, what's clattering in the dishwasher? And I said, oh, I'm washing rocks. And he just looked at me and he said, I don't even want to know and walked back out. <laughs> but I, I washed all these rocks and then I wrote phrases um, of differing uh, intensities and differing uh, uh, meanings. 
to kind of illustrate the process of what what happens, you know, what the experiences are and how they grow and become more uh, difficult uh, for women going through domestic violence. And then I just literally passed out a rock and a phrase to everyone in the room. And they had to stand up, say their phrase, and then drop their rock in a basket as I went around. And by about a third of the way through the table, that basket was pretty heavy with the rocks. And half of the way around, it was even heavier. And, and of course, I discussed it as we went around. But by the time we got to the end of the table and the last most devastating comment, there was probably 20 pounds of rocks in that basket, and the person was struggling to carry them. And my oh. my point was, you've gone through all of this, and now you get to this point, and everybody says, well, just take off running, just leave. But you're carting this heavy basket of rocks with you. How fast are you going to run, and how quickly are you going to move? And it sounds to me like you're saying kind of the same thing about grief in general and the things that happen to us, that we're carrying around those those heavy baskets of rocks, and then we're expected to just move lithely and 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 sprightly through the world. Am I kind of... No, you're precisely right. I mean, the word grief comes from gravis, which means heavy. So there is a weightiness to grief. We feel dropped to our knees. We feel pulled down to the ground when grief is around. But we are a chipper society. You know, we're a heroic society. We're always supposed to be happy and in charge. And even in psychology right now, there's a real obsession with happiness. And so yeah. when there is this unmetabolized grief in our life from traumas, from losses, from degradations to our worthiness, uh, we don't match that current uh, expectation. So we then are doubly cursed because now we feel like we've done something wrong. We're not, we're not happy. We're not uh, meeting the expectations to be all right. So not exactly. only are we carrying and, and- and not only did we do something wrong, but whatever bad happens to us, it's our own darn fault because we weren't right. thinking happy enough thoughts. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah, we have a very progressive psychology. We're always supposed to be getting better, stronger, more integrated, spiritual. But that becomes its own burden. You know, when people come into my office wanting to change and there's an urgency to that sense of I want to improve, but hidden in that improvement is self-hatred. I'm not okay the way I am. See, that's itself its own form of grief, that we've come to actually despise our own being. And we have to somehow fix it in order to feel like we might even just be permitted back into the circle. But that's a provisional welcome based only on performance. How did I do? How did I show up? But I can't let anybody know exactly how I feel inside. I can't let anyone know how much sorrow I'm carrying around in my bones because I won't be welcomed then. You know, I've used this example before, but um, I recently um, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And I haven't talked about it a lot because it's, you know, it was caught early and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And and really, quite frankly, in the grand scale of things that have happened to me in my life, this I'm not even sure if it makes the top ten. <laughs> Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh, and yes. Yet, I mean, yeah. And yet because of the word cancer, I'm getting all sorts of support, all sorts of, you know, uh, sympathy and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. And I'm thinking, well, where were you when I went through this or when I went through that? And I couldn't really talk about it Um, because if I talked about that, I was just allowing myself to wallow in something. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, I think. And one of the things that I've seen um, I, I have a friend who worked in a hospice for a number of years, and one day she told me she was leaving the job, and I said, yeah, I can imagine it must be really hard, you know, to do that and see people dying all the time. And she said, no, not, that's not the hard part. The hard part is seeing them blaming themselves for dying. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we have a very incriminatory system here in this culture. You know, if, when we suffer, there's one of three responses. I did something wrong. It's my fault. I'm being punished. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a very compassionate basis to our approach to suffering. And uh, that's one of the elements of what I call the apprenticeship with sorrow is that we have to cultivate 
the skill of self-compassion because it's very hard to approach our grief when we are holding judgments about our life. So we have to really work hard to soften the, the approach to how we come to our sorrows so we're not coming with judgment. When we're not coming to get rid of our sorrow, we're coming to attend to it, to give it a reverence, actually. Uh, Oscar Wilde wow. said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And it really is. I mean, it's one of the most sacred places in our life when we're dealing with grief, when we're dealing with sorrow. We're utterly vulnerable. We're utterly transparent to the world in those moments of grief. And that's why we're so, um, well, yes, we're so vulnerable in those moments because we are too alone with that grief. Yeah. And when we're living in a culture. And it hurts. And we're we're expected to carry it privately which is its yeah. own terrible sentence. Grief was well, not only been... are we expected to carry it privately, we're expected to carry it with cheer and positive yeah. thoughts. Yes, yes. You know. Yeah, when I work at the Cancer Help Program uh, twice a year, I do a week-long retreat at Commonweal in, in Marin County, and uh, when the group comes together, there is this attitude initially that I have to think positive thoughts and that if I don't think positively, I'm contributing to my cancer's progression. Absolutely. Utterly untrue, utterly untrue. But we have, again, this very positivistic psychology in our culture right now. Well, and the, the, it's a tyranny. I mean, it really, it, it feels like a tyranny of positive thinking that yes. I'm not allowed to experience anything other than unicorns and rainbows. And if I experience it, I darn well better keep it to myself because nobody else wants to hear it. Nobody else will see it as any kind of catharsis or dealing with. They'll just see it as negative thinking and whatever bad thing happens to me after that is my own darn fault. Yeah, so we have this fantasy that somehow I'm going to be the one who's exempt from that suffering. So, you know... Well, last I checked, we all experience bad things (laughs) and we're all going to die. I mean, unless the research has changed. (laughs) No, no, no. I think you're you're still on to something there. Uh, (laughs) We'll all know grief. We will all know loss. But we won't... Very few of us will have enough... Uh, accompaniment to that sorrow so we won't feel like we've done something wrong. It's amazing when we do grief rituals together to see what happens when people are are grieving side by side. Something is repaired. We just did one a couple weeks ago, and after it was over, a young woman said, "Um, that was, that felt right. You know, she had never done anything like this before. I said, yes, and where did that feeling come from? There's something wired into us, deep in our ancestral DNA, that expected to be weeping together, not alone in my room, but side by side. We expected to be grieving together and to be giving thanks together and celebrating together, but we didn't expect to do our life, particularly those most difficult threads of it, alone. So when she said that, that felt right. There's something very true about that. We're restoring a matrix. We're restoring a means by which to address the difficulties of life, but not alone. Yeah. Francis, how did you come to this field? How did you come to this understanding of um, how to work with people? Well, it had a, a, a gradual evolution. You know, I, I was trained you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, in a, uh, to do one-on-one work with people, and that's what I did for a number of years. And I started giving talks on shame uh, for many years and beginning to see how widespread that symptom was. And part of the symptom of shame is this profound sense of loss to my sense of worth, my sense of value, And I could begin to see how much grief is accompanying a chronic feeling of worthlessness. And then I began to study with an African teacher um, named Maladoma Somme, 
And Maladoma introduced me to the territory of ritual. And something really clicked in my psyche, saying, this is the oldest way that we used to heal. Uh, it wasn't in private practice. It wasn't sitting one-on-one with somebody. You might have had one-on-one conversations. But the larger container, the larger context for healing has always been communal. And part of what that does to restore that communal context is it recognizes that my suffering is not mine alone. It belongs to all of us. Just like those rocks you passed around. We do a very similar ritual where we put, we speak our grief into a stone. We put it in a bowl of water. And eventually the bowl begins, becomes full of stones. And we recognize this isn't my sorrow. This is our sorrow. This is the communal cup of grief that we're all carrying. And until we speak it and acknowledge it, it will feel like it's mine and the, and the weight of it will be privatized. So once I understood the, the value and power of ritual, I began to experiment with that um, through a variety of different means. And the grief rituals began in the uh, late 1990s and have been going strong ever since then. Um, Part of what I also saw around grief is that it is not a pathology. It's not something we need to fix or or, uh, repair. It is simply a consequence of being in this body. Uh, You're going to know loss. And we tend to pathologize things, even in the DSM-5, I think it is now, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Diagnosing Psychological Symptoms. Grief, or what they call complicated grief, uh, you're allowed basically two weeks, two to four weeks to grieve. Beyond that, it's called depression. And it <laughs> needs to be tra- treated primarily with medications. Now, you know, we know who was behind a lot of this, uh, you know, trying to get it diagnosed like this, but you've given me f- four weeks maximum to deal with the loss of my child or to deal with the end of a marriage that's been going on for 25 years, or, you know, the death of my husband or my wife or um, my dear friend, or even my pet, even my beloved kitten or my dog. I mean, the soul doesn't have these frameworks of time that you're done. Uh, I tell one story in my book about this man in his mid-'80s was at a talk I was giving on grief, and I had heard from some people who came with him that his wife had just died in uh, a few months prior. And when he spoke up in the group, he said, a friend of mine died. He couldn't quite let it get that close to his heart that it was his wife he was wow. talking about. But at one point, he, he raised his hand, he says, and he was an Austrian engineer, and he said, I want to know the one, two, three of grief. I want to, I want to get this over. And I thought about it for oh, a moment. Oh, well, of course. Of course and I we said want to him, get it like, over. It, yes. it doesn't said, feel good. <laughs> no. So I said to him, I can't accept the premise of your question. It presupposes an ending to your grief. It will not end. It will change over time. It will become a bittersweet melancholy. But this is the new relationship you have with your wife. And this is part of the rights of grief and the rights of love is that we have to be willing to acknowledge and now uh, maintain the relationship through sorrow. And he looked at me and says, I can do that. And a tear came out of his eye. But we think that there's something wrong with us if we're in this state of grief, that we have to fix it and repair it. And that's the last thing grief wants. It wants, like I said before, a quality of reverence that we are really in this ground between love and loss continuously. They're, they're sisters. They're so entangled from, from the beginning that there will be no love without loss, and no loss that isn't a, a sweet, bittersweet reminder of the love that was there. I hope I answered you your talked, question. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. And, and, you know, it's interesting to me because at this stage of my life I've I've experienced a lot of loss and a lot of grieving and I have seen how people um, 
people don't want to see you. They, they give you that two weeks. They give you that month. Um, and right. then you're supposed to move on, uh, look ahead, be positive. And it doesn't work that way. At least it's never worked that way for me. And, and as you mentioned, grief is is like a, a, a tattoo. It's It's always there. You can cover it up. It might fade a little bit, but it's always there. It's always with you. It's not going to go away when you experience some of these losses. And yet no. somehow we feel like, well, if we just do the right thing, say the right things, it will just all go away. How did we get there? Why do we think, you know, that, that that's going to be the case? Well, we live, like I said, in a very heroic culture. And the idea of the heroic is to always be above, always to somehow... Uh, muscle our way through something and the other side of that heroic thing is that we're we're conditioned to be very much solitary individuals and not given permission to actually lean into the support of others so there's a great deal of deprivation that comes around our grief times the other thing about grief along that same line Heather is that um, the work of grief long term is the deepening of the individual. It is the ripening of the individual. In other words, I think the deep work of grief is the, is the creation of elders. Uh, when we're allowed to really digest sorrow over a long period of time, what happens to the soul, what happens to the psyche of an individual is that we begin to become spacious and capable of holding great things. And so when we're walking down the street or in our communities and there are young men and women who are struggling and suffering because there's no elders there to help hold them, it's because we're too afraid of our own pain or too too afraid of our own grief. So in a sense, we compress and become smaller. And what we need are are human beings with great capacities right now. And those are what I call elders. And that is the deep work of grief, is the shaping of of a of an individual who carries what they call gravitas, and gravitas comes from the same root as grave as gravity and grief. Um, they are the ones who can walk with a dignified bearing, knowing the full weight of sorrow in their life. Those are precious human beings, and we need them desperately right now. And yet, we don't seem to, as a culture or as a society to value that. One of the, as I age, uh, a couple of the observations that I have uh, about some of the older people that I have around me is that um, they get larger. Life doesn't close down as you age, opens up and becomes bigger. That's how I, I am viewing it. And it surprises me because I always thought aging was a closing down, getting smaller process. And from what I've seen, it's not. And you're saying that this gravitas, this this, this accumulating the weight, is expanding. I, I'm, I'm saying this very badly, but are, are you kind of getting my point that Yes, no, and you're hearing mine, that that, that is the long-term work of grief is that uh, ripening of the human being into someone of great capacity, great uh, imagination, and great ability to hold the complexities of life. That's the possibility. When we reject grief, when we push it away, then that other possibility is there of of shrinking of becoming smaller and also becoming bitter see we could say grief is like salt and uh, if we get large that salt is in a solution of compassion and uh, affection and warmth and so that salt kind of uh, helps to give flavor and taste to our life but if that gets too condensed and too concentrated we become bitter. And we can also see that in a, in a number of older people where they have lost humor, they've lost 
imagination, they've lost love, and they've become embittered. Uh, by not having that permission and that encouragement and that holding to really let grief deepen and ripen them over time. Is it also, though, a function of the fact that as we carry this gravitas, as we accumulate this gravitas, it's not really valued um, by those around us? They want us to not talk about it. They want us to buck up and uh, say the happy thoughts. Um, and if we, if we, I, this is how I sometimes feel, that if I actually reveal what is really in me as far as the grieving and the processing, that that will be disparaged, looked down upon, and not valued at all by those around me. Um, I'm I'm getting the messages that, uh, well, you need to move on. You need to let it go. I think those are the two worst phrases ever. Why would I let go of some of my life? Why would I put it on a shelf, move on, never look at it again? Um, it's my life. And yet I hear that all the time, that somehow or other I, you know, we're not going to be healthy if we don't let it go and move on. How does that yeah. fit in with grief and grieving? Well, it doesn't, does it? I mean, it uh, it doesn't give us permission to really allow it to do its work on us. Um, when we feel this pressure to get back into the productive efficiency of life, uh, there's not space around us. In the old traditions, you were given usually about a year before anything was expected of you. You, and and everything was basically provided. The, you know, the food was taken care of, and things were taking. The responsibilities that you were carrying were also then seen to by the rest of the village and the rest of the community. I'm not idealizing that, but there was a certain intelligence that the work that you were being asked to do would in turn uh, bless the village. That deep grief work is not also for me privately. It allows me to become a richer, more uh, beneficial contributor to the village, to the community. So, yeah, there's very little encouragement for this. Um, and so we're seeing a thinning of culture. We're seeing a diminishment in what what's needed, particularly in these very difficult times we're facing right now. However, at the same breath, I would say that something seems to be changing culturally. When I first began talking about grief, and leading grief rituals years and years ago, I had to convince people to come. I said, why would I want to spend a weekend crying? And I said, no, 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 it's it's actually a good thing to do. And now, uh, when I go to talk or I'm, we're offering workshops or whatever, they're sold out within a, within a couple of weeks. You know, there's, there's, we have long waiting lists. So I think something is happening culturally that there's a, a gradual breaking in the denial of uh, of the people living here, that what's happening to us just at a cultural level but also at a deeper structural level of the integrity of the planet itself is breaking through our denial. And it may be that grief is what saves our butts in the long run. It may be the broken heart that makes us respond and make changes in the ways that we're living here. That's really a, a kind of my deepest hope, is that this grief that's so present in people's lives will be the thing that allows them to respond with affection and with uh, a certain fierce protection of the preciousness of this world. Let's talk about what precipitates grief when we first started our conversation, there's the usual ones, death, divorce, all of those we are used to thinking as precipitators of grief. But aren't there a million other things that cause us to grieve in our lives? And and they're acknowledged even less than the major divorce, death, and you know disability uh, grieving. Um, aren't there, you know... You know, I'm I'm thinking of the you know death by a thousand cuts. You know, I mean, it it, it 
doesn't have to be a major devastating event in life to create grief and a grief response, does it? No, no. And what I write about is I, I talk about the five gates of grief. But there are many ways that grief enters our life. And like you said, there's really only one form of grief that's culturally acknowledged, and that's, like I said, losing someone or something that we love. But the other gates of grief, like the second gate of grief, is what I call um, uh, the parts of us that have never known love. So growing up for me in this family in the Midwest and um, very strict uh, Catholic family, um, I had to disown anger. I had to disown exuberance. I had to disown body and sensuality. I had to disown huge portions of my being in order to fit into that system. Well, every one of those acts of disowning is a loss. It's a loss to my wholeness, to my integrity. But I've also learned by the reflection in the family and also in the institutions of school and church that these parts of me are not okay. So I learned to hate them. I learned to despise these parts of me, hold them with contempt. So I'm in a chronic state of loss that only grieving would would help to ameliorate, but I can't grieve for something I'm holding with contempt. So that's what comes in the door of my office. Are people caught in a chronic state of grief and unable to touch it because they are holding those parts with judgment? So that's the second gate of grief. The third gate is the, the sorrows of the world. So when I was driving here today to my office, I passed the evening's carnage of roadkill of skunks and possums and raccoons and fox and deer and you know all of the other critters, the squirrels, and they are all casualties of our culture. And they're also my kin. And right now we can't go a day without hearing news of another assault to the uh, well-being of this planet. That's with us all the time because we are part and parcel of this planet. Any illusion that we have that we're separate from the integrity of the, of the watersheds and the soil and the air and you know is fantasy. And so it's felt in our bodies. I remember when the Gulf oil spill happened, uh, 2010 I think that was, uh, every night I would have these waking nightmares of suffocating and I would hear the cries of the shorebirds and of the dolphins uh, and I would, I would cry. And this is happening 2,000 miles away but my psyche was entangled with that grief. Uh, it was not separate. It was me in those forms. Um, so that's that's around us intensely right now, is the sorrows of the planet. The fourth gate of grief is a little more complicated to describe, but it goes back to that woman's comment about this felt so right when she did the ritual with us. The fourth gate is what we expected and did not receive. That we expected. Oh, I hear you there. Well, yeah. <laughs> What I mean by that is that we are wired at birth to expect what our deep-time ancestors experienced, which was a communal context, that we would be sharing meals together, uh, grieving together, celebrating together, gathering food together, um, sitting under the stars at night and telling the stories together. Everything had that communal context. We expected 40 pairs of eyes to greet us in the morning and to see what we dreamt about. And we expected that there'd be elders around us to notice the intricacies of my own character and help call out my own genius. We expected so many things that did not materialize. And in its absence, there's this profound emptiness inside of us, which again, we blame ourselves for. What did I do wrong to feel so empty? But that emptiness is actually a profound absence of what was meant to occupy that space. That's a very thumbnail sketch of something very complicated and, and I think very essential to what's happening to a lot of us. And then the fifth gate is what I call ancestral grief. And ancestral grief has to do with um, many threads. One of them is 
that at some point in our ancestral lineage, each one of us, uh, we came from an intact village tribal community, if we go back deep enough in our, in our own lineage. And somehow at some point that was broken by a, by a move, either by necessity, by threat, or by choice, to set out for a new continent, a new life. Uh, oftentimes that meant a severing of traditions, of language, of foods, um, of rituals, of a, of a known and intimate landscape. So many losses accompanied uh, that transition. But also there's the part of that ancestral grief is what happened particularly for Northern Europeans uh, when we came here, what we did to the indigenous cultures and then the whole importation of slavery. Uh, and that is still, that's an ancestral grief that we are still, still suffering from in, in great measures. All of the issues happening right now at uh, Standing Rock or with uh, Black Lives Matter, these are all the remnants of the untouched and unacknowledged grief that we have to address as a culture before there would be any true healing, any true movement um, around those very deep and very uh, grievous parts of our story as a culture. So grief comes into us all, all manners of ways. And to have a bigger, a bigger understanding of that helps us to appreciate the many ways grief comes to us and maybe that it gives us more permission to respond to it with compassion and with community. That's really an essential piece to that. Yeah. But as we mentioned before, that community isn't easy to find. Um, people don't want to share your grief. They want you, in fact, to not have your grief and to stuff it away because it bothers them. So how do we deal with that? Well, I think, I think underneath that um, resistance is longing. Uh, what I have seen and what I encourage people to do is to uh, break the taboo by just saying to someone, um, I want to invite you over to my house on Friday night and we're going to talk about loss. And uh, we're going to acknowledge the fact that we all have it. See, I think we're, we're hungry for permission to get outside of the cultural conditioning that prohibits us from touching what is so true and so evident in each heart that every one of us knows loss and sorrow, just like we were saying a few minutes ago. But rarely are we granted permission to say, and this is what it looks like. This is... This is my experience of this. And, but when we get together, let's agree to not offer any advice. Let's not try to fix any of this. Let's try to not to make it any better. Let's just give room for it. Let's cry together. Let's laugh together. Let's tell stories. Maybe we'll do some poetry or a prayer, or maybe even it's a simple little ritual. But let's begin to break the collective amnesia and the collective anesthesia around how we forget and we go numb to survive in this culture. It is not working. So we have to try something different. And that's one of the reasons why we during that's what we call a soul activism, is that our response to what's going on in the culture must address these depths. We must not just try to create new policies, which is good. We need new policies, we need new laws, we need all those different things. But we also have to approach it from a perspective of depth. We have to touch where it meets us in the blood and in the bone, how it weighs on us, how it makes our lives uh, more despairing and disheartening when we don't touch this in a communal way, in a context that really helps it to move and helps us set it down. I think we're just hungry for that. I think that, and I'm going to be devil's advocate here, um, I think that what you're talking about might work really well in California. <laughs> but if you're in Youngstown, Ohio, not so much. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I just uh, I just did a workshop in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, did you? And, and it was sold Good. out. And they had a long waiting list. And so even there, people, you know, when we do our workshops, this past one we did, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had people from Florida, from Georgia, from uh, Minnesota, from um, Massachusetts. We had nine different states came together. I mean, it's wonderful that people are willing to travel, but it's also symptomatic that you have to travel 3,000 miles to do a grief ritual. So I would just say that, you know, even in the Midwest, in this very conservative little locale, which is where I'm from, I'm from Wisconsin, that place was packed with people. And they already invited us back again for next year, which we're going to do. We're going to go back again. So I think even where we're looking at the conservative territories, people still know sorrow. And, you know... But we're longing we're not for something. Taught. We're not taught we're not what? what to do with our sorrow. No, 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 no. We're we're grossly uneducated around it. You know, and so that's part of the reason why we fear it, is because we feel that when we get near it, we're going to just be in free fall. We're just going to be absorbed and consumed by our grief. You know, and grief does not want to take us hostage. It simply wants to be acknowledged and 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 really allowed to work us. So grief wants to do something to us, to, to, again, deepen us. But that only means, that only occurs if we are also working grief. So if I'm writing about it, talking about it, doing ritual with it, if I'm bringing it into my conversation, uh, rather than trying to outrun it, I try to find a way to numb out from it and to avoid it. Those are our strategies yeah. culturally. Is avoidance? Yes, they are. You know, and so. But you know, I have to. I have to say, Francis, that sometimes I was just talking with somebody, my son, earlier this week about this. Sometimes, and I don't. I I do understand that different people think differently. For example, yeah. I think in pictures. You say to me, man slipping on a banana peel. I don't see those words. I don't digest the words. I immediately, my brain sees a picture of the man slipping on the banana peel. Other people think differently. They don't get the pictures. They don't, you know, they process differently, blah, blah, blah. So I do understand that people think and process differently. For me, however, it is very easy for me to um, be absolutely (sighs) stricken um, if I allow myself to just go somewhere. So, for example, if I hear about um, a friend's dog dying, I don't just think, oh, that's so sad, the friend's dog died. I immediately, my whole body is just immediately awash with all the times that I experienced my dog dying and all of the people I know who experienced the dogs dying. And it can, if I don't make myself stop it, it becomes totally overpowering to experience that. Am I just well, weird? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I think there's a wisdom in our in our the way that we titrate grief as well. It isn't something that we uh, don't have any effect over. We we can certainly work with it and even negotiate with it. Um, I was going to go with that. Lost my thread there. I was going to say something about that. What we want to do is have a working relationship with grief. We want to come into right relationship with it. That's also part of the apprenticeship. We tend to have a binary relationship of either pushing it away, like we were just saying, or we drown in it. What we want is a is a collaborative relationship with grief, as if it's walking by our side. We're going to walk with grief, have it felt, but not. Uh, not crushing us, not overwhelming us. And again, that's part of having faith in grief again. What you just said a moment ago about that we're not taught anything. See, grief is not just an emotion. It's also a skill. It's a faculty of being human. And if we don't learn the skill, we live in constant fear of it. So we're always pushing it away, and that's part part of that obsession with the happiness thing is 
we're afraid if we go down into that darkness, we will disappear. Um, well, plus it hurts. It hurts to go into that darkness. You know, yeah. why would I, if if I put my hand on a hot stove and it burns, I'm going to move my hand away and I'm not going to want to touch that stove again. So yes, why some, would I do that with grief? Because it's present. It's 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 already there. It's in the body. It's in the heart. And uh, it's just being with what is and learning that you don't die from that. In fact, you come out and know much more joy as a consequence. So there's a direct relationship between sorrow and joy. We don't know that, but there is. I remember I spent some time in, in a village in Africa, and I remember walking up to one woman and just saying, you have so much joy. And her response was, that's because I cry a lot. That was her immediate response. She knew the direct relationship between her sorrow and her joy. We don't have that as a foggiest clue in our culture. We don't have much joy in this culture. We have a lot of excitement. We, we have substituted excitement for joy. So we're stimulated, we're on stimulants, we're, you know, we're constantly on roller coasters or stock markets or something just to make sure that we have a pulse. But in reality, our joy has been stunted because now we're living what I call a flatline culture. We have a very narrow band of what we're allowed to feel. Uh, so we've, we've closed off that lower register of sorrow, which has compressed the upper register of joy, and we live in this very narrow zone. This is not life, and our soul did not come here for that. Our soul came here for full participation, for the whole encounter with being human. And grief is part of that encounter. So that's, again, part of that having faith that grief is not here to destroy us, to take us hostage, but it is actually here to make us larger human beings. And I know it's painful. God, I know from my own encounters with grief how exceedingly painful it is. But there's also something that opens up in my being by my willingness to sit with it. It takes outrageous courage at times to sit with this stuff. But it also takes... Well, it takes courage... It, it takes courage on two levels. One is to face that that discomfort within yourself, but then also to face the um, reaction of those around you when you do decide to sit with your grief. Yeah, yeah. Francis, what role does forgiveness play in grieving? That's a, a tough question, <clears throat> and it's a hard one to, to do because you can't will forgiveness. What you can do, and what I've seen, is that you can create the conditions through compassion and through an acceptance of your own grief and, and being with it, you can create the conditions under which the grace of forgiveness might arise. But you can't force that. You have to acknowledge all of the outrage. See, outrage is also a face of grief. When there's injustices, when there's been traumas, that has to be fully acknowledged and, and felt and expressed and sat with. You can't bypass that. You can't bypass the grief. You can't bypass the pain to get to some idealized state of forgiveness. You have to go through that to get to that place, like I said, where the grace of that forgiveness might germinate, might arise. But that's, that's not, we can't go there first, I don't think. We have to honor I the think that my understanding of. of forgiveness is very different from um, a, a, a popular understanding of forgiveness. I always feel like um, I can live my life okay without forgiveness of somebody um, or something. Um, I, I don't. I don't see it as really my role to do that. I mean, unless somebody specifically asks me to forgive them for something. But most people who, you know, I, I don't. I don't have that sense that that's something that I can actually do for anyone else. Um, and I don't feel like it's a requirement for me to um, proceed with my life. 
but I think I'm kind of unique in those views about forgiveness. I think that popularly we are uh, told that we need to forgive, and you'll see people who to whom egregious things have happened, and the first things out of their mouths are, I forgive you, and now I can move on with my life, and da-da-da-da. It almost seems to me like forgiveness is some sort of magic mantra that is supposed to remove us from suffering. And I don't see that really happening. Yeah, is, I, is that? yeah that's precisely what I was saying, is that you have to go through the heavy lifting and the hard work of dealing with the grief, dealing with the outrage, dealing with the pain. Then perhaps that other state might arise, but it's... Yeah, it becomes a kind of a panacea of uh, letting it go prematurely. It will then show up again in some other form. It, it, it doesn't just disappear. It has yeah. to be fully, fully honored. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about in your gates um, to, to grieving um, is that lost opportunity, the lost expectations that we have for ourselves. And I don't hear people talking about that as a form of grief, and yet I see that. I, I see it. I recognize that as soon as you said that, I went, yes, of course. Um, this this is what I see. What part does this... Um, is processing the grief of these lost expectations. For example... Um, I want, I'm, and I'm just making this up, but I wanted five children and I could never have children. That's a lost expectation. I didn't have children who died, so I'm not grieving the death of my child. But mm-hmm. say I wanted children, I couldn't have them, and that's a lost expectation. That's a loss in my life, and that deserves as much grieving as someone's death. And... I don't, again, see that as something that we acknowledge. You're just supposed to kind of get over those lost expectations. How significant are those lost expectations when we're dealing with with grieving? Well, when I'm sitting with the people in the cancer program, rarely do we end up talking about cancer. We're talking about the unlived life. That's what comes up in those circles is the choices I made, the ways I abandoned myself, the moments when dreams collapsed. Um, that's what comes up when you're sitting there and death is really right in the room because of this diagnosis. Uh, what they're talking about isn't trying to, you know, scrape up enough hope to stay alive. They're talking about their lives in terms of what did not materialize. And that's a grief conversation. And it's a conversation of, well, what do I need to pick up and hold with tenderness and compassion? And maybe that I never did grieve the fact that I did not have my five children. And maybe the fact I never grieved the fact that I never married or that um, I didn't go to college and fulfill a dream that I had of, you know, doing whatever. Those unacknowledged losses the expectations, the hopes, the dreams, they, again, they also just don't dissipate like vapors. They linger in our psyches as, as untouched uh, longings. And so they do come back. I can guarantee you that, like I said, when I'm sitting with people who are facing those issues of life and death, this is what arises. It isn't about you know, all I achieved or all all I accomplished, it's what did I not touch? What is calling for my attention? What did I neglect? What did I forget or omit? Um, What did I not grieve? Yeah. What does, does, how does grief inform us on how to live our lives today? Well, if we, if we were wise, as a people, we would be having grief rituals every month. That's a big right? if, right? That's a big if. <laughs> just, just, just stay with me for a second. <laughs> if you were wise, we would have grief rituals every every month in our culture, in our communities. And if we did that, we might get current. We might actually be able to live in the present moment. 
because right now, we're like I said before, at the beginning of our conversation, we have these U-hauls of untouched sorrows that we're dragging behind us. And so much of our attention is pulled into the past. We're pulled into all the things I didn't acknowledge, I did not grieve, the losses that haven't been honored. Those things weigh, they have gravity to them, and they pull us backward. So we're not really in the current of our life. We're not in the current in the sense of in the present moment, nor in the electricity of this life, the current of our life, or in the flow of our life. So if we could grieve fully, and there's one woman who um, died about uh, a year ago now. She called me up about eight years ago and just said, I heard about these grief rituals. Why would I want to come? And we talked for a while. She said, okay, I'll, I'll come. She had stage four uh, metastasized breast cancer that she'd been living with for almost 20 years. Wow. And she came and... Uh, had a profound experience of grieving all the losses, all those expectations. She didn't get married. She didn't have children. She didn't get a career because this this came on came on her in her early twenties. And so all of those expectations just got washed downstream. And she, but she never really grieved those. And she so she grieved those. And then she started coming to every grief ritual we offered. She was coming two, three times a year to the grief rituals. And she said at the end, you know, I'm just coming for maintenance. I just want to stay current in my life. I just yeah. want to just you know, make sure there's nothing here that needs attention. And, uh, and she would write about it in her blogs and uh, just how much the grief work benefited her in order for her to leave here empty. She didn't have a, a boatload of untouched things. She was leaving here clean. And that would be a sweet way to say goodbye to this life, that I'm not carrying regrets remorse or untouched sorrows, but I'm leaving here with gratitude for the opportunity to have tasted the sweetness of this life. Francis, our time is up, or coming there shortly anyway. I've had a very enjoyable time talking with this topic with you, even though it's not a topic that I would have <laughs> thought I would enjoy. So thank you very much. You're if very welcome, Heather. I enjoyed it too very much. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Uh, the best way is through the websites. There's two of them. One of them is wisdombridge.net, and the other one is at my personal site, franciswelleronet Either one of them would give email addresses and phone numbers, and that's a good way to connect. Okay, terrific. And right. um, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Nope, I was just going to say thank you one more time, Heather. Okay. Well, we have two minutes left, so I'll give you 45 seconds to give us one thing that maybe I didn't ask you about, maybe one word of wisdom, maybe something that you'd like to share before we wrap this up. Can you come up with something that I perhaps didn't ask? Well, I think I would just reinforce the idea of uh, courage, uh, to begin speaking directly to the losses in your life, this is to all of our listeners, that um, you are not alone, that this is in the heart of every single person walking down the street. If you look deeply enough, you will see grief in the eyes. And to begin to break the spell of coping and the spell of solitary confinement around grief and to begin to make small circles of invitation so we can begin to break our isolation and our loneliness with sorrow and come back into the living fabric of, of community. That would be my wish for all of your listeners. And if I could add something to that, it seems to yes. me that we are so solution-oriented. We have to come up with a solution for people. When we're talking about grieving, there are no solutions. There's just being quiet and listening Right. That's, Grief is not a problem to be I... solved. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a presence awaiting witnessing. What a wonderful way to end the show. Thank you so much, Francis Weller. I do usually try to end our show with a quote about our topic. And today I found a quote by Havelock Ellis. All the art of living lies in a fine mingling of letting go and holding on. And I think that 
kind of summarizes what I'm taking away from our conversation today. That sounds so, good to thank me. you very much. You're very welcome for, for joining us. Join us again next week on Three Women, Three Ways. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.